Your final is, I believe it's May 5th. From, uh, it's in the afternoon. One to three, right here. Okay. And I think that's the Thursday of that week. Uh, let's see, other stuff as long as we're catching up. I had two questions from the class that I didn't get a chance to answer publicly, but I did do some follow-up and research them. And the National Marrow Donor Association, National Marrow Donor Association. If you want to be a, a bone marrow donor, they work uh, throughout the globe coordinating entire immune systems from donor to recipient. So if you were to uh, if you were to donate bone marrow in the United States and the match occurred elsewhere in the world, yes, they would transfer bone marrow to those locations. So it's the National um, National Marrow Donor Association. Uh, there was another question that was asked about. Uh, uh, let's see, cancer from mother to fetus. And uh, the, the common knowledge up until very, very recently was know that the placental barrier protects the developing fetus from any kind of cancer that might be metastasizing throughout the mother's body. Well, as uh, within about, I think it's just within the last two weeks, researchers in Japan have uh, come up with very, very uh, clear evidence that it is possible for some cancers, and I can't tell you which kinds, because I, I don't recall, but some cancers actually can be transmitted from mother to fetus. All right? But for the most part, the fetus is protected against cancers that the mom may have uh, while the baby's in utero. Okay? But yeah, there are, there are now uh, compelling pieces of evidence that say, yeah, it can happen. Okay, so I think I'm up to date on answering questions. All right, so we were talking last time we were together, last Friday. I gave you kind of a quick overview as we're entering into the, the cardio-respiratory section of our book, these two chapters. And cardiovascular disease, and you'll see this all over the place as CVD, it's not a particular disease, but rather a collection of various problems associated with your cardiovascular system. And it is the number one killer in, uh, in the Western countries, in the developed nations. Uh, CVD, cardiovascular diseases, are number one in terms of killers. And these, uh, this is a list showing you some of the most common of those CVDs, beginning with hypertension, which we'll talk about, atherosclerosis and arteriosclerosis, and um, heart failure, embolism, stroke, varicose veins, angina, arrhythmia, and aortic aneurysms. And we will be talking about a few of these as we move forward. Most common procedures. So if those were the most common diseases, what are the most common procedures associated with CVD? Uh, coronary artery or the bypass and valve repair or replacement. Treatments for the arrhythmia, which is you know a kind of a, a upset beat, and that may end up being a pacemaker. And aneurysm repair or sealing off a place where the vessel has ballooned out. So those are the most common procedures. 
Yeah, I also showed you a few maps when we were together last time. And I believe very, very strongly in some of these connections that I'm showing you. Remember, this was our map showing um, the highest heart disease levels in the nation. And up here in Washington and Oregon, uh, we're, we're not doing too badly. Idaho has a higher incidence of CBD than we do here in Washington. But if you look down to the numbers in the South, extremely high levels of various kinds of uh, cardiovascular diseases. And the other correlations with this, the other maps that I showed you, this was the obesity map. And again, we have, we have similar representation in terms of percentages of the population that are obese, and it is also consistent with uh, the percentage of the population having CVD. And there's another correlation with poverty. So if we're looking at this combination of factors, it seems like one of the best ways that we can address cardiovascular disease as the number one killer in the United States is to start looking at the factors that are associated with poverty that lead to obesity and then subsequent cardiovascular diseases. Because clearly there's a relationship that, uh, that needs to be addressed in dealing with those. We also looked at some of the risk factors, and if you have high blood pressure or high cholesterol or diabetes, any one of those or combination of all of those will contribute to increasing your incidence of cardiovascular disease. As an example, if you had high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes, then you have a six times greater possibility of having cardiovascular disease than somebody without those factors. Okay? And to reduce the risk of heart disease, this is uh, one, of the, one of the areas where you have control is in terms of uh, lifestyle or what we would call environmental choices. And this directly relates to diet. If you are to increase your intake of these kinds of foods, navy beans, uh, split peas, kino beans, chickpeas, uh, basically all of, the, all of the legumes and whole wheats, then you are able to reduce your cardiovascular disease risk significantly. And according to the statistics, if you are able to include these foods in your diet, particularly legumes in your diet, four times a week, the numbers show us a 22% decrease in your risk factor. And they taste good, so that's an easy, easy thing to do. Uh, other risk factors. Okay, so environmental, yeah, that's one. We'll talk about that again here in a second. But there are also genetic risk factors. And if you have a family history of heart disease, is it carved in stone that you will have that same problem? No, but you do have a higher risk factor. So if you have somebody in your family um, in that close circle, uh, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, parent, grandparent, out about that far, then if they have had a heart attack or some kind of a heart event, cardiovascular event, prior to the age of 55, then you want to be very, very careful about making sure you're getting appropriate testing and that you're watching your diet because that way you're doing as much as you can to reduce that risk factor. Also, uh, family hist uh, gender and ethnic background. If you are a black man, you have an extremely high risk 
of cardiovascular disease. That is the, that is the highest risk group of, um, of all that we have found right now. Okay, so if you are a black man, you definitely want to take, take very seriously some of the environmental factors that you can control in terms of reducing your risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, among those environmental factors, again, the stuff that you can control besides diet, don't smoke, get up and move, sedentary lifestyle is, asso <coughs> is associated with the problem. If you're carrying excessive weight, uh, increase or decreasing that sedentary lifestyle may help. Dietary changes may help. Reduce your salt intake and uh, do your best to man manage your stress. And there's not a real strong correlation between high stress and heart disease. There really isn't. However, if you come up with strategies for dealing with the stress that we all experience, that will contribute favorably towards reducing, <coughs> reducing potential risk. Hey guys, come on in. Now this is what some of this nasty stuff that we're talking about might look like in a blood vessel. And I showed you very, very briefly uh, this, this uh, photograph here of what a cutaway of uh, atherosclerosis would look like. And these are all basically fatty deposits inside the blood vessels. And they're typically referred to as plaques. And obviously, if you've got this stuff building up in your blood vessel, just like, you know, just like the plumbing with your bathtub and your sink, if it starts to uh, clog up the, the sides, the insides of that blood vessel, it's going to reduce the amount of blood that can flow through there. Now, another problem associated with that is when we do have these, these clots or a thrombus that is in the blood vessel, if it breaks loose, then we have a whole nother set of problems once it becomes what would then be term, termed an embolism. Okay, so if it's running, if it's out in the blood system, it could get stuck, it could get lodged in a smaller vessel and shut off blood flow almost instantly. So here we have kind of a progression of that. And this would be the plaque or clots starting to uh, form in the vessel wall. And there's a kind of an accelerated accumulation because once it starts, now there's a place to hang on to. So it will continue to expand and sometimes very, very quickly along the insides of those walls. Now, once we have this little piece that breaks, breaks loose, uh, a little clot breaks loose, that's what we would refer to then as an embolism. And like I was saying, it can, it can result in clogging up a smaller, uh, smaller vessel very, very quickly. Okay, here's another one of the cardiovascular diseases that was on that first list, and this is an aneurysm. And that would look like these little, sort of a bubble. And they have different classifications within the aneurysms, but it all amounts to the same thing. And that is a weakened place in the blood vessel that all of a sudden balloons out. And if it's weakened, that means that area is thinner. If it's ballooning out, that means that there's pressure being put on that area. And it also changes the blood flow, changes the blood volume. And you can see here that if one of those aneurysms bursts, if the balloon bursts, most of the time it will result in death. So finding these, uh, these aneurysms early on is really critical to dealing with this as a problem. Now, if we have an aneurysm in the brain, it could cause stroke. 
But here is another one here. And this is called uh, an aortic aneurysm. And you see how low in the body that actually is. It's way down by the kidneys, this aortic aneurysm. And this is another fairly, uh, I mean, all too common. You can see that we have this whole area ballooned. And part of the surgical repair for an aortic aneurysm would be, like we're showing here in the diagram, where this is the aneurysm itself, but they've put in a graft or a stent right through the middle, connecting the healthy vessels below or above and below the aneurysm so that the blood flow is maintained. They don't remove the extra material, but they put in a, a throughway that takes the blood flow and redirects it back where it's supposed to be. Now there's another, this is uh, if you were to have a brain aneurysm. Uh, this is a little clip, and again, they don't clip it off and sew it back tight, but they would just close it off with a clip that then stays in there. So now, instead of the blood flow, including this little, this little bypass, or this little out, outskirt here, now the blood flow is returned to where it's supposed to be. Okay, so we don't have this, this little outcropping. And let's see, stroke is another one uh, that we are seeing all too commonly. And again, this is when the blood flow to the brain is stopped by uh, <coughs> uh, one method or another. Maybe it's a, a clot has formed, or for whatever reason, the blood is not getting to the brain. And remember what's in the blood. The blood is there to carry oxygen, it's to carry nutrients, and your brain is heavily dependent on those nutrients especially heavily dependent on the glucose, but also the oxygen, of course. So if you have blood shut off to any part of the brain for a, uh, even a short period of time, without the oxygen, that tissue starts to die very, very quickly. Um, some of the symptoms here, if you are you know, entering into a stroke situation or you're with somebody, if very suddenly somebody's speech changes, if they're not able to, to speak clearly, uh, if uh, you know, part of the face starts to drop, anything that seems un, uh, unnatural in terms of gait and movement and so on should be taken very, very seriously. Here's a list of some of the symptoms here. And I mentioned on uh, Friday, if you're having difficulty with one eye, particularly if all of a sudden you can't see in, from one eye, get to the hospital immediately. Okay? And these are... These are some of uh, the things that can happen with that thrombus. And remember, thrombus is like you've thrown a clot. Okay, so the blood clot uh, is, is released. And these are three of the fairly common ones. Here's one where we have uh, 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 the clot lodging in one of the uh, uh, cerebral arteries. Okay, so that's going to cut off all of this area of blood flow. If we have... Uh, clot here in the uh, in the carotid artery here in the carotid artery that's going to be cutting off everything above it and then down here is a picture of a normal carotid artery that doesn't show all of the the disease associated with that and then again you've seen similar pictures to these where do various functions in the brain happen and so these would uh, coincide with wherever the blood loss to the brain was and potential activities within the brain that might be uh, losing control. Now, these are some more of the nutrients that you can look at in terms of managing risk 
for heart disease. I've mentioned the omega-3 fatty acids. There are other omegas besides three, so uh, getting the right level of those fatty acids becomes very important. B-complex vitamins, and I do prefer a B-complex rather than individual like B6 or, or any of the other ones. The B-complex allows the right proportion of all of those components of B vitamins to work together. Vitamins C and E are critical, and some of the other ones that you might not have heard about, but you've got this on your PowerPoint slides, so I encourage you to look this up and uh, pay attention to what they're recommending here in terms of the foods that you're eating and get the good ones. All right, so we then, so that's where we are on cardiovascular disease. And we're going to go through the next section about the actual mechanics of the heart, the physiology, the structure of the heart, and how, how it all works together. So here are a few of the questions that this one, okay, how, what is wear and tear on these valves? Why is there such wear and tear on the valves? What do each of the chambers do? Uh, musculature within the four chambers of the heart. We'll look at that as well. And first off, overall function, and it seems, seems pretty basic, seems like we know this already, but the whole function here with the cardiovascular system is we've got, yes, obviously we're transporting blood, but the blood is only the vehicle, okay? The blood is only the vehicle. What we're really moving are the nutrients, the wastes, and the gases uh, between tissues and, and uh, getting them cleaned up that way. And to do that, the parts or the organs that contribute to that function would be obviously the heart, the blood vessels, and the blood itself. Okay? And we also work with the respiratory system. So if we're looking at cardiovascular system, it's, it can't function independently from the respiratory system, obviously. All right, now in terms of structure, we'll start from the outside of the heart and work towards, uh, towards the middle. And the first outside, outside most layer is this membranous sac that you can see in this picture, and that's called the pericardium. So the pericardium wraps this whole, all of the rest of the heart and parts of the, the base of the vessels that are coming off of that. And the pericardium is actually two layers with an open section in between. So if you look here at the pericardium, in this diagram it's showing that there's layering, and up here too you can see uh, that it's layered. So what happens is between that outermost and innermost layer of the pericardium is where the fluid will, will be held, right inside that little thin layer. And that fluid is a buffer system. Because if you, if you look at a picture of the heart beating, it actually it's moving. And what this does is it buffers the heart from hitting uh, any of the other parts around it and becoming damaged. However, there are some specific diseases that are associated with the pericardium that are separate from the cardiovascular diseases that we looked at. And these are two of uh, the most uh, most prevalent diseases associated with the pericardium itself. Again, just this little membranous area. And one of them is called pericarditis. And this can be viral, bacterial, it can be fungal, 
It can come as a result of uh, follow-up after surgery. And the symptoms of that, uh, very different from a heart attack, classic heart attack, there would be absolute excruciating stabbing pain immediately behind the sternum or the breastbone. So it would be very acute, very sharp, sharp, piercing pain. Uh, or it could be over towards the left side of the chest. Okay, so if you've ever had heartburn, sort of like that, but in one of these areas, okay, closer to the heart. And this is most common, the pericarditis is most common among men, notice this guys, 20 to 50. Okay, this isn't an old man disease. You folks are in the range where this is something that you might uh, want to be aware of. And again, this one, remember, it can be bacterial, it can be viral, and there's only so much you can do to protect yourself from bacterial or viral. This one is not a lifestyle choice. This is what are you being exposed to and how healthy is your immune system to fight that off. Now here's another one of the pericardium diseases. This is pericardial effusion. So if we have that inner and the outer layer with a little bit of fluid between, what this means is that there is an excess accumulation of fluid in that level, okay, between that inner and outer, uh, outer part of the pericardium. And with that additional fluid accumulation, I mean, you can sort of envision that. You've got extra fluid here. That's going to be putting more pressure on the heart. And also, if it's there to buffer the heart, but you've got this extra fluid, now your heart's not getting the buffering that it would have otherwise. It's getting more pressure, even within the beat system. So for this one, some of the symptoms that might be associated with that <coughs> is that just that sense of pressure, but also it may be accompanied by a fever, very, very rapid heartbeat, because again, the heart's trying really hard to do its job, but it has to do it faster because it's got all this additional pressure. So if you're to have a sensation like that, and it goes more than just a few minutes, this is a 911 call. And don't ever worry about, be, uh, about seeming like a hypochondriac, especially you guys who are more likely to say, ah, oh, it's nothing, I'm not going. Go ahead, take the precaution. The healthcare providers will not make fun of you, I promise. Right, here's another one, and this one you hear, sometimes you'll hear about for class action suits on late night pay-per-view TV, right? This uh, mesothelioma, well, this is a pericardial disease, and it's sometimes represented as a respiratory system disease because it is associated with asbestos exposure, and, uh, but it's a heart disease or it's a pericardial disease because once you've breathed in those asbestos fibers, they start to break. And then as they're working their way, you know, pump from the, from the lungs to the heart, out into the body, they tend to lodge in and around the heart, particularly in this inner layer of the pericardium. And then once the asbestos has lodged in there, then it creates a potential for uh, additional mutations that can result in tumors and or cancers in the pericardium. Now this is, uh, I wasn't able to find any other relationship to an environmental hazard with the mesothelioma besides the asbestos. And one of the issues with this is that it might not show for 10, 20, 30, 40, up to 50 years 
after the exposure before it actually starts to present in terms of heart issues. All right, so that's, remember, we're working from the outside in. That was the pericardium. Now we're going to look at what's on the next layer beyond the pericardium. And this is the, this whole area here where we're looking at heart muscle is the myocardium, but that too has layers. And the outside layer is the epicardium. And epi, usually if it's a prefix for any of our science words, means outer, outer side. And endo would be the inner <coughs> layer. So we have the epicardium at the outer surface. And then we have the bulk of that area is the muscle or the myocardium. And you might remember when we were looking at muscle tissues, I said that if you were to take a bunch of these myocardial cells and put them in a Petri dish, they will actually synchronize their beat relatively quickly. So that's where you would find all of those kinds of cells here, is in that, uh, the, the muscle part of the myocardium. And then the very most inner surface here is the endocardium. Okay, so we have uh, a couple of different kinds of epithelials, different types of epithelial cells on the outside, on the inside, and then the muscle cells on, uh, in the center. Uh, so another one of the components of a heart, besides uh, the layering outside of the heart, now we're inside the heart. And we have valves that generally protect flow so that it's only going one way. And there are four primary valves in the heart. We're going to be looking at these two. And for the life of me, I have gone over and over and over the diagrams in your book, and it's wrong. No, no, it's just wrong. So these are the corrections here. And if you, and you have that right there on page 300, page 313 has this diagram. So when you're working with the heart diagrams, uh, make this change that it is the, uh, the bicuspid valve and the tricuspid valve. They have them backwards. They're labeled backwards, they're drawn backwards. And then same thing on this one. Uh, I also, I took this little piece of the drawing, copied it and flipped it over so we would have the tricuspid valve on the correct side and the bicuspid valve on the correct side. And these are a couple of, how can I remember which is which and where? Well, let's see. Try to get it right. So the tricuspid is associated with the right ventricle. Try to get it right. Tricuspid, right ventricle. And then on the other side, I might buy a valve. So mitral is a bicuspid. And since it's not on the right side, it must be on the left. I might buy a valve. So mitral valve is the, uh, also known as bicuspid. <laughs> so let's look at those a little bit more closely. And I find really helpful in this chapter, any of the diagrams, it gets really, really confusing. So I went through my, my book and I just labeled right and left on every single one of those pictures. Um, because you're looking at it and you have to remember, you're looking at it backwards, okay, like a mirror image. So if you label your diagrams right and left, it'll just, it'll just help you along. Okay, again, correct your, correct your diagrams that one too. 
And now, with these heart valves, um, what, they, what the heart valves do is control the blood flow between the ventricles and the atria. So as the blood is moving from one chamber to the next, it has to be allowed to pass. And these, uh, the mitral valve is very, very often one of the valves that needs to be replaced. So we have all kinds of different ways to do that. This is what it actually would look like in, uh, in a heart. But there are also mechanical prosthetic valves, strictly mechanical. I mean, it's like changing an oil filter almost. Or there are these bioprosthetic valves. So now we have a combination using technology and biomaterials to create all of these different types of valves to accommodate whatever the need is for that patient. So if you're hearing about uh, mitral valve replacement, these are some of the options that uh, the surgeon might be addressing to replace that valve. All right, now, how about the blood flow? All right, in this one, um, we have blood entering from two different sides. We have um, coming off of, let's see, let's get in the right position. Okay, we have the right atrium, Okay, the blood is coming into the right atrium from superior and inferior vena cava. So it's coming in from below and above, and this is the not oxygenated blood. Okay, this is the blood that's returning from wherever it's been elsewhere in the body, coming back to the heart to be reoxygenated, and it will enter the system through the right atrium. Okay, it's going to enter in here first. Then it has to go through that valve that separates those areas down into the ventricle. And this is a lot more muscular down here. You can see that because basically the blood's just passing through the atrium. But here's where the work is coming. Because then from that right ventricle, we've got to get the blood to the lungs where it can be reoxygenated. So from the right ventricle then, the blood gets sent to the lungs to be reoxygenated. Gabriel. I understand how uh, food and smoking affects uh, heart disease. Okay. But stress? Stress? Well, remember, because st remember our chapter on stress and immunity, and when your body is responding to a stress situation, you have increased levels of uh, cortisol, you have increased production of the corticosteroids, and basically you're changing a lot of the chemistry. And remember also that it shunts the blood away from some of the, some of the other muscles to the brain and so on. So you're just you're changing the rhythm, you're changing the blood flow of everything else. And then you've also got the additional adrenaline, which is speeding up the heart rate and accelerating your respiration. And if you can manage stress, then less likely to smoke or you Yeah, yeah. Which will contribute to that. Sure, yep. Okay, so we had the blood, uh, the non-oxygenated blood coming in through the right atrium, going through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle, from the right ventricle out to the lungs, can go out both to both lungs, and then it's going to come back in through now the left atrium, okay? So it's going to come back in through the left atrium, go through the bicuspid valve, and oops, sorry, and then into the left ventricle. 
Now, this has to be the most muscular of the four chambers, is this left ventricle. Because what happens next is that the force from that muscle sends that newly oxygenated blood out to the rest of the body. So that's where the greatest force is going to be exerted. So we need the musculature to back it, uh, to back it up. Okay, And this is the cardiac cycle here. We started talking about this a little bit in the context of hypertension, high blood pressure uh, the other day. I'm going to redo that a little bit. But we have here, I mentioned a couple of words, uh, diastole and systole, or your diastolic and systolic pressures. And during the diastole, or the diastolic pressure, this is where we could consider at the beginning of the cycle. The heart is relaxed, the blood is entering into the atria, and then now we're gonna for the blood is getting forced from the left and right atria into the left and right ventricles. Okay, so we have the deoxygenated coming in and we have the oxygenated coming in. A pressure is going to move them in past the valves and into the, uh, the, muscular, the muscular ventricles. And then here with the ventricular systole, now we have the unoxygenated blood being forced over to the lungs, and then we have the reoxygenated blood being forced out into the body. So that's a higher pressure. And da-da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. So a heartbeat is not like bum-bum, bum-bum. It's more like da-da-da, da-da-da, more like that. You'll hear three beats to it, okay? So here is, here is a kind of a simpler, slightly simpler diagram. We have the blood coming in to the right atrium, down to the right ventricle, forced out to the lungs, return to the left atrium, left ventricle, and then out into the body. Oh goodness, time is... Time is really flying, isn't it? Oh, it is for me. Okay, get that. All right, now back to tying this together with blood pressure. And in terms of those, those two, uh, the two terms that we talked about, diastolic and systolic, when you're taking your blood pressure, uh, high blood pressure is the same as hypertension. So if you hear somebody has hypertension, that means they've been diagnosed with high blood pressure. And with hypertension or high blood pressure, it doesn't mean that every, you know, that you just, you had a high reading, but otherwise everything is normal. It means you would consistently have high readings. And the difference between these two, uh, S and D, this is the way you get your numbers, 140 over 90, for example, or, or better, you know, 120 over 70 would be nice. You're getting the systolic first, diastolic second. My memory device for that is super duper. And high over low. And systolic, this is as the, the heart contracts and pumps that blood out into circulation. So remember when I was showing you uh, the, the right and the left ventricle, and the ventricle was muscular and it had to push the blood out. Okay, that's when the, artery, or when the vessels are under their maximum pressure, is the systolic pressure. Then, after, now it's calmed down, okay, it's not forcing the muscle right now, that's your diastolic pressure. This becomes really, really critical because you can have high blood pressure, or high pressure on the systolic end, but diastolic is 
how what is what is it at rest? So that tells us what is the least amount of pressure that those vessels are subjected to. So if this diastolic number is very, very high, that means even at rest, your vessels are under tremendous pressure. So we want a nice, nice low number on uh, diastole. And right now, I think that uh, the standard is, uh, it's about 120 over 80. Sheila, do you know that one? Is it 120 over 80, thereabouts? Anyway, I think that's where the, where the range is right now, but that's still too high. Uh, you know, if you shoot for something <coughs> under 120 and around 70, it's so like 120 over 72, those are nice numbers. You can live with those. Okay? Okay, so hypertension, high blood pressure. And with hypertension, number one risk with hypertension is stroke. So rather than the uh, atherosclerosis or some of the other diseases that I've shown you up there, if you have high blood pressure, this is the biggest risk, is that, boom, you're going uh, to lose blood flow to the brain. And <coughs> these are some of the other symptoms that go along. You're not going to go by just that number, just 130 over 90 or whatever it may be. But if you have consistently high numbers, you are always tired, frequently confused, vision changes, <clears throat> chest pain, or it just doesn't feel right, blood in the urine, and you may not be able to see that, okay? Because if it's, if it's small amounts, urine is still gonna be the normal color, but under urinalysis, it can read those, uh, those micro amounts. Frequent nosebleeds, if you have frequent nosebleeds, there are uh, a lot of possibilities that may be associated with those nosebleeds, including uh, leukemia. So you do want to make sure that you're, if you have frequent nosebleeds, just get it checked. You know, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't do any harm to have the doctor say, you're fine, no worries, after testing. Okay? And with that, um, let's see, we'll pick up, we'll pick up with the rest of the heart, blood, and into respiratory on Wednesday. Okay?